Well, turn back to John chapter 19 in your Bibles. John 19. Eventually, we'll come to land on what is really a climax in John's account of the crucifixion. It was that last verse we already read in verse 37, which is quoting from the Old Testament. It says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. We'll give careful attention to that one verse a little bit later on. It's multi-layered in its meaning and significance. But let's first follow John's path of chronology to get us to, to that verse. John's account of the crucifixion emphasizes Jesus' kingship. That's unique. In the previous chapter of John, Jesus and Pilate had a somewhat lengthy exchange about king and kingship. So Pilate said in verse 33 of John 18, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Pilate asks again, So you are a king? And Jesus said, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to be king and to testify to the truth. So Jesus in John is the true king. What's more, he's the heavenly king. His kingdom is not of this world and doesn't operate accordingly. He's God's king. He's God's anointed John emphasizes Jesus' kingship, but he also emphasizes Jesus' innocence. In fact, Jesus is not just innocent, but he's righteous. And in juxtaposition to Jesus' kingship and his innocence is this rejection of the true and righteous king. The rejection of the king by almost everyone around him. Shown in Judas's betrayal, shown in his arrest, shown in this chapter in his trial, and ultimately his crucifixion. So let's start there. Jesus is a rejected king. Jesus is a rejected king. That's the emphasis of the first 15 verses of John 19. Jesus, the true king, the righteous king, God's king of a heavenly kingdom, was rejected. This is one of the themes that kicks off this account of the life of Christ. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The next verse. He came to his own, his own people. And his own people did not receive him. What's the opposite of receiving? Rejecting. They weren't just indifferent. They rejected. And Jesus foretold this to his disciples very early on in his ministry, such as Luke 9. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's rejected. We see it here in John 19, at first, with the flogging and mockery. 
The soldiers twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They laid a purple robe on him. They, they kept saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck, them, struck him with their hands, it says. He's mocked by Pilate when he says, marching Jesus out in this no doubt bloodied brow from the crown of thorns in this purple robe. Behold the man, the man of the hour. Behold, take a look at him. Later he says, behold your king. He's not thinking Jesus is a legitimate king. He's behold your king. Go ahead, take a look. Your king. Now, Pilate does find Jesus innocent of the religious leader's accusations. In fact, four times Pilate attempts to release Jesus. Four times Pilate declares Jesus' innocence, if we include uh, the end of the last chapter, chapter 18. There he says this man was innocent. And each time... That Pilate tries to release Jesus. Each time that Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent of the charges, the religious leaders insist, and all the more, that Jesus must be crucified. So Pilate caves. These were, these were politically temptuous times. The, the religious geography, the, the ethnicity differences going on in Rome with the Jews there, it, it, was, it was difficult to, to spin all the plates and keep everything safe and peaceable. This is no doubt nothing other than Pilate appeasing the Jews lest they get too animated and worked up against the Roman authorities on their high religious day of Passover. And so the religious leaders reject the coming king. They reject Jesus as their king. They reject his kingship, his kind of kingship. And in doing so, they reject God's kingship. They reject God as king. Remember, Jesus comes with a heavenly kingship. He comes to do his father's will. He comes as God's representative to earth. He comes as God himself. They reject God. They're so intent to have their way with Jesus that they spout blasphemy to Pilate to try to make their case. You see in verse 15, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Politically, that was true. In these days, there wasn't a Saul or a David over Israel. But anyone who knows Jewish history also knows that fateful day in 1 Samuel 8 when the people demanded, we want a king like the nations have, one who will go out and fight our battles for us. And God tells them and tells us, the reader, that in doing so, they had rejected God as their king. The religious leaders know that story very well. And yet, in a scary repetition of history, they replay 1 Samuel 8 all over again. They follow down the wicked path of Saul, who opposed God and his anointed at all costs. 
Jesus was the true king, the righteous king, God's king, and yet he was rejected. Rejected vehemently and violently, even unto death. So secondly, he is a crucified king. He's a crucified king. Verses 16 to 22 show us that. Look down at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. Verse 18 says, there they crucified him. With him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. What's remarkable about those verses I just read is how undescriptive they are for how important they are. There's no drama involved in taking Jesus. That's the verb. They took Jesus. There's no, there's no drama involved in he went out. All it tells us is that Jesus went willingly. He didn't put up a fight. He went to the cross obediently and willingly. Notice also there's no description of the actual crucifixion in John's account. The only words we get are verse 18, there they crucified him. There's the whole crucifixion crammed into one little pill of four words. And then verse 23, when the soldiers crucified him, and it's just a clause put at the beginning of, of, a, of a sentence. It's not the main point of the sentence. When they crucified him, and the thought goes on to something else. Why is this? Well, one thing we should note is that there's a big difference between Scripture and a Mel Gibson movie. Scripture focuses on the meaning of the cross, the how, the why, God's purpose is in it. It doesn't focus on it medically, we could say. Like we might be interested to, to focus our attention on. Someone said that, the, that a movie like The Passion can show us crucifixion, but it can't show us the cross. Like the way the New Testament speaks of the cross. Like Paul talks about glorying in the cross. It, it, two words there, just representing the whole of God's plan in Christ for our salvation. When Paul says the cross, he doesn't just mean some guy's crucifixion. He doesn't just mean a painful and unjust death. He means salvation. I think that's one reason why. John gives us such a short mention of Jesus' crucifixion. But notice that we also have this whole bit of the story about the inscription that was put over the cross. Pilate wrote a name, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he wrote the charge or the crime, king of the Jews. That's what a sign above the cross would have done in that day. That's what it was for. It would be a public notice of the person and the crime in order to warn others to not do that crime or you'll be like this guy. So when it says the king of the Jews, that's the crime Pilate's attributing to him. And of course, the religious leaders don't like that wording at all. 
He said he was the king of the Jews. They say in verse 21, don't write king of the Jews, but this man said he was king of the Jews. A big difference. But Pilate's patience is worn out by now. I wrote what I wrote. And through this quick sign-making of Pilate, and the aggravated interchange between the religious leaders and Pilate, providentially, the sign over Jesus' head upon the cross speaks truth. It is what it says. He is the king of the Jews. And yet the truth of the sign is probably lost on almost everyone there watching these events. All they see is the irony. Notice, it would look like irony. Jesus, king of the Jews, and below that would be a mostly naked criminal being crucified, gasping for breath. You'd see, if you were an observer, a condemned criminal. You'd see one turned in by and even hated by his own people, his own kind. Jesus is a crucified king. All this looks just sad and defeated so far. But thirdly, Jesus is a promised king. He's a promised king. In other words, this was the perfect plan of God from before time began. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that the true and innocent, the righteous king, the rejected and crucified king, is the promised king. As I already noted, Jesus was foretelling this tragic weekend that we're reading about here early on in his ministry. We already read that this is how John began his book. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's put nicely. They rejected him, and we know what that means. They crucified him. But John says he came to the world, and he came to his own. He came, he came, he came, which implies something about a mission, his father's business. And remember Jesus' words from the cross? It is finished. He said in verse 30, it is finished. And no doubt that wasn't just this life is finished, this pain is finished. I give up, I quit. But it's something of an exclamation point showing that he had done what he came to do. And all this was foretold in Psalm 2. The disciples in Acts 4 point that out for us, that there would be opposition on God's anointed, and yet it would be futile opposition. So in Acts 4, the disciples quote from Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Religious leaders plotted in vain. Pilate plotted in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then the disciples comment on Psalm 2. And they say, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, 
that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God was in it. God was behind it. He was working towards the intended goal, not committing the sin himself, but using the sin of Pilate and the peoples of Israel to do whatever his plan had already determined to do. You can also see that Jesus is a promised king in the events surrounding the cross which are filled with irony. They drip with irony. The mocking was actually unintended truth, wasn't it? I mean, they bow before Jesus. Yeah, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Of course, they mock. And so it's not worship, it's sin. But they spoke better than they knew. Pilate spoke better than he knew when he said, Behold the man, behold your king. Pilate's writing, The king of the Jews above Jesus' head was far more true than he knew or the religious leaders did. But we know, we know, it's all according to plan. But even more explicit, John, in verses 23 to 37, just look down in your Bibles and see that as a big block. Verse 23 to 37 there tells us that the events of John 19 were fulfilled we're fulfilling, rather, Old Testament Scripture. Four times in these verses, John says something like, this happened in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Or, this happened in order to fulfill Scripture. Four times we see phrases like that, such as in verse 23 and 24, when the soldiers were casting lots for Jesus' garments, and that's likely coming from Psalm 22. Or in verse 28, when Jesus says, I thirst, John says that was in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. He probably has in mind a verse in Psalm 69. Or when it says in verse 31 to verse 33, this whole thing of not one of his bones will be broken. They went to go and break his legs, but he was already dead, and, and so they didn't need to, and, and they didn't. In verse 36, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled referring back to Psalm 34. And then there's this one, the one I said we would focus on a little bit more. Verse 37. They will look on him who they pierced, John writes. In verse 34, they pierced him with a spear and outflowed blood and water. And then John quotes Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they pierced. Will you turn to Zechariah 12, if you know how to find it? If you don't, don't feel bad about using that table of contents in the front of your Bible. Zechariah 12. This is important. Here's where we get to that one verse I said is the climax of John's crucifixion account, and it's multi-layered with its dimensions and important significance. Zechariah 12 Verse 10 is where we get the little bit of a phrase that John quotes from 
in verse 37 of John 19. Verse 10 says, this is God speaking, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that, and here it is, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, when the New Testament quotes a bit of the Old Testament, they fully intend for you to go back to that spot and snoop around a bit. They quote one verse with multiple verses in mind. It's almost like a, an arrow that just says, see Zechariah 12 and so, you know, around there. So the, the language is important indeed, but we should, we should look at the phrase that John quotes in its context, and so we're right to read all of verse 10, and if we had the time, to snoop around even more in Zechariah. The context of Zechariah 12, even just verse 10, is fascinating. Notice, Zechariah 12 foretold a day when God would pour out grace and mercy. They will look on me, he says. But then, did you notice this? They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. That's odd. It's Yahweh speaking, is it not? But then there's a him. He mixes first person and third person. And John takes this language clearly spoken by Yahweh God about Yahweh God and some other him. And John applies it to Jesus upon the cross and the spear in his side. The Old Testament at times spoke of God being pierced in his heart because of the sins and waywardness of his people. But one is coming, a him who will be pierced. And John sees this as Jesus being pierced, not in his heart emotionally, but Jesus being pierced physically. And he says those who pierce him will mourn like they lost an only child. Like losing a firstborn, verse 10 of Zechariah 12 says. A firstborn, an only child. It's probably not coincidental that the New Testament, and especially John, speaks of Jesus as God's son. The only begotten, the one and only of God. He was the firstborn who was pierced. He was God's firstborn and God himself. Now, we have to ask, when did this Zechariah 12 thing exactly happen? When did that get fulfilled? What was John saying by quoting it here in John 19? Well, there was the piercing, of course, that happened at the cross at that very moment. And that's the main reason why John quotes Zechariah 12.10. Pierced. The spear pierced. And then he thinks of Zechariah 12.10, they will pierce him. But we also know from the other gospel accounts that there were some at the cross 
that very day who basically did this very thing. They looked on him who was pierced and they mourned. Remember the centurion? The guard who was involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And yet Jesus died so humbly, beautifully, righteously. God gave him faith and he said, surely this was the Son of God. We also know from the book of Acts how Zechariah 12 further plays out. Peter preaches a message in Acts 2. Listen to this. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's preaching in Jerusalem, preaching to Jews in that day. Perhaps many who were of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then Luke, the storyteller of Acts 2, says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They saw him who was pierced, and they mourned. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. We're moving this puppy down the road a little bit here. We're getting closer to, well, to what Zechariah foretold and what the cross is all about. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That was the point of Peter's preaching in Acts 2. That's what Zechariah 12 promised. Grace. Mercy. Needed because of sin. It was God's plan all along. And John wants us to see that the rejected, crucified, promised king, it was no accident. It was not unfortunate. It was God's plan all along. The Zechariah passage goes on. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. On that same day they pierce this one on whom they look. God will release a fountain of cleansing from sin. Do you remember what happened when the spear pierced Jesus' side? Verse 34, it says, out poured blood and water. Medically, that can be explained. But, you know, John isn't writing medically, and near, neither is he writing merely historically. He's writing history that preaches. And Jews in those days who had grown up and lived in the Old Testament sacrificial system, they were never far from the reminders that blood cleanses from sin. Never far from the reminder that water was the purification for uncleanness in preparation for worship. Blood and water. There were symbols of cleansing all through the Old Testament. John sees blood and water come out of Jesus. And he probably thinks of Zechariah 13.1. 
a fountain flows out, cleansing from sin. Of course, anyone reading John's language about water and blood and being pierced and sins and cleansing might also remember Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John wants us all to look on him who was pierced. To know who he is to know what he was doing upon the cross, and to know what it means. To know why he was pierced. Because of our sin. And it's in that sense that we've all pierced him. Not just the religious leaders, not just the Roman guards. All of us have pierced him with our sin. As we sometimes sing from that old hymn, was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. John wants us to look on him whom you have pierced, and he wants you to mourn. He wants you to mourn your sin. He wants you to say afresh, was it for crimes that I had done? That he groaned upon the tree? This is what the New Testament calls repentance. Seeing our sin is God seeing it, calling it for what it is, hating it, and turning to him as the only source of healing and forgiveness. Jesus was rejected by us all, not just the soldiers or the religious leaders. He was pierced because of us. He was pierced by us, but he was pierced for us. That's Isaiah 53. He was pierced for us. So John wants you to look upon him who is pierced. He wants you to mourn, but he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe. That's the whole point in this whole section, he tells us that. In verse 35, at the end, that you may also believe. That's why he's writing this section about the cross. That's why he wrote his letter, this, this book we call John. He tells us in chapter 20, these things were written that you may believe, and believing you might have life eternal. He wants us to trust him as a trustworthy eyewitness to these events, he says in verse 35. But even further trustworthy than his eyewitness is that these events happened that, remember the, this repetition? That the scriptures may be fulfilled because God promised it long ago. He foretold of it centuries, even millennia ago. It was all God's plan, so believe. So let me summarize all this. Number one, some at the cross looked upon him who was pierced and they mourned 
and believed and were saved, such as the centurion or the third man upon the cross next to Jesus. Secondly, many others in Acts 2, in, preaching the, in Peter's preaching, were cut to the heart when they truly realized who it was that they had pierced And they repented and believed and were baptized and were added to the church. 3,000 souls that day. Third, John calls on all of us of every age, and you here right now, to look upon him who was pierced, to mourn your sin and the great cost at which, the great cost which he paid and believe and be saved. Yet fourth, all will one day look upon him who is pierced. And they will look upon him with recognition. They'll know who he is. And they'll look upon him with mourning. But it won't be salvation. It will be too late. Revelation 1 verse 7 tells us this using Zechariah 12:10. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Not a mourning that leads to repentance and faith and salvation. They will wail. Because the king has come back, not this time on a humble colt or donkey, but on a war horse to be glorified in his holy justice for all eternity. Look upon him now for salvation through his piercing. Mourn, believe, and be saved. He is a rock and a refuge. And those who look to him will never be ashamed. They'll be radiant. Let's pray. Father, may it be that all of us can confess and sing happily and boldly that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or as we sang earlier, nothing, nothing can wash away our sin but the blood of Jesus. Father, we're thankful that the cross shows us our sin. We nailed him there. It is our sin that put him there. If we were among the crowd, if we were involved in the politics of that day, we would have no reason to believe we would do any better than the religious leaders or Pilate or even the Roman soldiers. We thank you, though, that the cross shows us not just our sin, but shows us Christ's glorious victory over our sin. That he was pierced Not just because of our sin, but he was pierced for our salvation. 
we thank you. It's on Christ, that solid rock that we stand tonight, and we confess that all other ground is sinking sand. We thank you for your oath, your covenant, your blood. We trust, Lord, you are always our hope, our stay. Help us now to confess these words boldly and happily through song together. Amen.